From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. There's a difference between what we have experienced and what we remember. Experiences are real. They're factual. They're concrete. You are listening to a radio program right now. That's an experience you are having. And no matter what happens to you from this point on, that experience itself, it won't change. But memory is different. It's malleable. It's selective. It's even losable. And while I certainly hope that you will retain much of what you hear today as a memory, what you remember won't be everything that you experienced. You might recall with clarity and correctness some of the things that we will be discussing today, but you'll also interpret those things through your own beliefs and in the context of all of your other memories. And so, to the extent that you do remember this experience, you'll remember it differently than anyone else who is also listening to this program right now. And that's if you remember it at all. It's memory, not experience, that we rely upon to frame who we are, to make decisions in the present, and to project our thoughts to the future. And yet most of us don't think much about memory up until we experience the frustration that comes from not having it when we lose our keys, when we forget someone's name, when a friend or a family member talks about something that happened in the past that we can't recall, memory becomes very tangible. But in most other situations, we tend to take it for granted. Sharon Ranganath thinks we should think more deeply about memory, and not just when we forget something. He wants people to better understand why we remember what we remember, and he wants to help them understand how that happens. Ranganath is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and the director of the Dynamic Memory Lab at the University of California at Davis, and he's the author of a new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Sharon Ranganath, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That was such a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Sharon, I want to see if I can invoke a memory from you. You're a musician. And if I was to play a few epic bars, and I mean like epic bars of a song that I'm almost positive you'll recognize, I want to find out what's going to happen. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know this one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So tell me, okay, so first tell me the song. A Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division. Where does your mind go when you hear that song? So I was on sabbatical in England. This is actually a perfect example, by the way, Matthew. This is so good. So uh, I spent about 10 months uh, at the University of Cambridge in the UK uh, doing some research out there. And we took advantage of being out there to do all sorts of interesting experiences that we would never be able to do. So one of them was that my wife, uh, uh, Nicole, is a very big Smiths fan. And so we went to Manchester, England to do a Smiths music or a Smiths tour. And it was so cool because actually the drummer of another band in Spiral Carpets was the one who actually directed the whole thing and so at the time you know i was kind of into the smiths not obsessed with them but i like them i'm really fan of johnny marr uh 
but on the way we ended up seeing some stuff uh about ian curtis and i you know i have to admit i just never got over like some of the barriers with ian curtis and so that's one memory i come up with is just kind of getting more interested as as he told us more stories while we were between different stops on the tour between different points in the smith's tour and then separate from that i remember going into a bookstore one day in cambridge and my wife was looking at some books and so i was just sitting there and so i just happened to pull out peter hook's uh memoir he's the bassist from joy division it was magnetic and it just totally sucked me in and i went down a big joy division rabbit hole and i'm a huge fan ever since okay so i play like a couple of bars of music your brain instantly recognizes what they are, but not just that. They like we just took a tour of England together. I mean, you you went on this, you know, a little bit of a rabbit hole, right? What's happening in our brain when this thing happens? When something like just a little whiff of a scent or something out of our peripheral vision or a little bit of music triggers a memory. It's a beautiful question, and it gets right to the heart of what I study in my lab, which is called episodic memory. So we have different ways of learning, right? And so episodic memory is this really interesting ability that we have to remember specific moments in our life, right? And we should say this is different than semantic memory, which is like, I remember that, you know, the date that the Constitution was written or something like that. Yeah, exactly. We would even say you don't remember it. You just know that it happened, right? So... Um, so we would say that, like, you know, if you were remembered being there and you remembered, you know, being super excited about when the Constitution is being written, we would say that's episodic memory. Right. And so the way episodic memory works is kind of unusual because it's like, let's say you might know about dogs and you might know about picnics. And that's all semantic memory because you've been to 100 picnics and you've seen 100 dogs or whatever. But if I see this particular dog at this particular picnic and there's my brother there, for instance, now you have a bunch of things that need to be put together. But there's nothing about dogs that's fundamentally related to picnics, right? So you need some kind of a system to be able to glue these things together just because they randomly appear together. And that's episodic memory. And it does it by basically saying, at this time, in this place, here's all the stuff that came together. And so that's, that time and place is what we call the context, essentially. And so, you know, we don't have clocks in our head, literally. We don't have like a calendar per se. We don't have like a, a GPS in our head telling us where we were. There are cues that our brain uses that remind us, like, what are the things that remind us and bring us back to a particular time and place? Not just the things that, you know, just generally seem familiar to us, but things that really just pull us and give us that feeling of what, you know, so Endel Tolving, the psychologist who came up with this term, episodic memory, he described it as mental time travel. Yeah, I love this so much, right? Like this idea, and it, it's perfect. It's And this is a, an idea that Tolving came up with in the, what, the 70s, right? But it perfectly describes this experience that we have where we something triggers something and then we go back. And it doesn't actually even require a trigger. We can just say, I wish to think about this thing. And then it's almost a traveling quality, right? That's right. And so, you know, I mean, I'm sure for many of your listeners, they might be listening and they're, if they're, you know, used to hearing about science, 
this idea of mental time travel might seem really kooky. And it certainly did to me when I was a grad student. But the thing about what he's talking about is that feeling that you get, this kind of a je ne sais quoi, if you will, <laughs> that, that you're back in a time and place. And it's, it's very hard to describe, but when you listen to a song from a particular time in your life, it's an extraordinarily potent cue because I first, you know, the experience of first getting into Joy Division was very tied to being in that place at that time. And so that really kind of stuck to me for a while. And I can think of other times where I really went down a Joy Division rabbit hole and, and those times really stuck with me. But you know, a lot of my, my childhood, my high school years, my college years, I didn't listen to them. So it's very distinctively associated with a particular time and place, right? And interestingly, the thing that you immediately went to was a positive experience. And you've written that when we travel through time in this way, it's actually more likely that we're going to recall positive experiences. That's correct. Not not every time, but on average, people tend to have a positive bias, meaning that they kind of remember memories that are kind of more positive in general. And they tend to also remember them more positively sometimes and remember the positive aspects of the memory more than the negative aspect. So when, when I talked about that uh, Joy Division thing, I didn't talk about the fact that I slept really badly <laughs> the whole year that I was in the UK because it was so cold and damp everywhere we went. But there's another thing that reminds me of Igla too, because tastes and smells are very associated with it. And scotch. I understood scotch when I was in England. It just made sense when I was in the UK and the water was sort of, you know, the air was kind of wet almost because it was just so damp. And so, and you wanted to be warm and scotch kind of warms you up. And so this drink that I never particularly liked when I was there, I just enjoyed it. And then like coming back, as soon as I got back home, I was like, I, I drank it and I'm like, oh, why am I drinking this? It doesn't make any sense. It's 100 degrees outside. And so, but now if I do drink it, it brings me back to that time and place, you know? Yeah. Wow. Now, is it is it better because of that? I mean, does it not just bring you back to that time and place, but can you appreciate Scotch more now for having had that associative memory? Absolutely. I feel like very sentimentally attached to that time, especially because I formed all these bonds with people there. And, you know, after I left, I really missed them. So it's something that, and, and likewise, too, when my wife, you know, and this is a big part of memory, too, is the sharing of memories. And so, you know, when my wife and I talk about both the good times and the bad times that we had in Cambridge, you know, it was it's always a positive kind of story overall, because even the the bad times were things that we survived and we can make a story out of like, I can't believe how, you know, we would complain about how cold it would get at night in our apartment. And basically we got absolutely no sympathy from our <laughs> uh, manager there. So. It's weird how that happens, right? Like my wife and I tell the story all the time about a trip that we took to British Columbia once as college students and we get to BC and we're, we're like wandering around Victoria and we can't find a hotel room. We can't find a hostel. We can't find, you know, a hallway to sleep in. And this guy tells us, oh, you know, go to this church down the street and there's a cemetery there and you'll, you know, you can sleep in the cemetery, which we did. And it was, I think, I think in the moment it was a really bad experience, but the only way we can describe it now is this like beautiful, amazing time that, you know, we woke up in this cemetery together. 
But this is how it goes, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, again, a wonderful story because there's so many pieces of memory that come together. So one is if you share memories with someone else, people tend to feel like you're one of them, that it's like it gives you kind of a sense of being part of being closer to them, emotionally speaking. And so, or being kind of affiliated with them somehow when you share these memories, especially these unique memories that are kind of emotionally significant. Yeah, does that help explain why good memories seem to be sticky? Because, I mean, like, my gut tells me that from a survival standpoint, bad memories should be stickier. But there's got to be some evolutionary driver for the positive memory bias. And I'm wondering if it, if it's that, that thing that you're talking about where, you know, we're, we share this experience together. And if we share it and feel positive about it, it binds us together more. Yes. And I think you bring up a very important point, which is the evolutionary point, right? So... Bad memories can be extraordinarily sticky, right? It's kind of the source of phobias or it's the source of a lot of anxiety disorders. Um, PTSD is an extreme example of this. But I'm sure out of all the memories in your life, there's some times which are very negative memories, which you might not call to mind very much, but they're very much there and they stuck around, right? But, you know, the, the positive and negative spin that we often put on these experiences isn't necessarily the same thing that drove the brain's responses to them. In other words, what your brain thinks is important is not necessarily aligned with the story that you have. I can give you an example. For instance, it's like, if you're being chased by an attacker with a knife, you'll have this rush of noradrenaline in the brain. And that's a chemical that promotes plasticity. But if you're about to like go zip lining and you just get on the zip line and you're about to go off, you're also going to have a rush of noradrenaline, even though you might say that's a super positive, exciting experience instead of a scary experience. And so the, the chemical reaction itself doesn't necessarily dictate the story that we end up telling ourselves and sharing with others. That's exactly right. And one of the fascinating things about memory is that we can actually see, you know, especially in people with brain damage, that there are parts of the brain like the amygdala that are very important for tying our memories to particular kind of physiological responses that are associated with the emotion. But separate from that is the actual memory for the content, which would be supported by a brain area called the hippocampus. And your memory for the content, especially the context, where and when it happened, right? So often people will have a very strong feeling of remembering because the amygdala is activating all of these circuits that give you that kind of visceral feeling of the emotions, even if you don't really remember that many of the details of what happened because the hippocampal memory isn't all that great. Well, let's talk about the details, because there's this issue that as we reuse memories, as we draw them from the shelves of our mind, we play with them and then we put them back, something happens. Like memory can begin to diverge from the experience. Those details can shift. And there's a pretty famous case that, as it turns out, both you and I have written about this case of the NBC News anchor Brian Williams, who in 2015 was accused of lying about an experience he had in Iraq when he was there in 2003. So 12 years had come and gone in this space. And when he re recollected the incident, he did it quite wrongly compared to what the experience actually was based on the records and recollections of people who were there at the time. 
But you suggested that we can't know whether Williams was lying or if something else was happening. Something that's quite common when it comes to memory. Can you talk about that? Yes. Brian Williams, just for the full context of the story, he was doing some reporting in Iraq. And later on, he had told people that he was in a helicopter that got shot down in Iraq. I think I think his word was fo- forced down by a rocket propelled grenade. So not necessarily hit, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's right. Forced down. So uh, that's a great memory kind of trick that happened. We could talk about that more. So it was forced down. And eventually some uh, veterans started to voice cons- you know, complaints saying, look, I was around there and this wasn't, he wasn't in the helicopter that went down. So it turned out that he was in a helicopter and I think it was under fire, but it was following another helicopter that went down. And he had actually kind of a crazy experience where they ended up stuck in this area for a while, stranded with the other helicopter crews until they were rescued. So it wasn't like a completely safe experience. But somehow that got translated to him actually going down in the helicopter, which you can imagine, how do you forget something? How do you get that so wrong? But this captures something that we know in psychology, which is when we remember, we do get many details. It's not like our memories are false, but then we pull up those details and we have to make a story out of it. So we don't replay the past. We imagine how the past could have been. The useful part of this is it means that we can actually massively reduce the amount of information we need to store in memory. Because if you think about it, we experience so much in our lives, you couldn't really possibly store that much in a little brain that uses so little energy compared to, say, a supercomputer or something, right? So in order to do this, one of the ways of being very uh, economical is to basically reuse a lot of what we know the semantic memory, if you will, and then glue on those little pieces that were particular to this event, which is episodic memory. And then the more you tell that story, the more your brain gets confused between what you imagined versus what really happened. And so you can certainly do this in the lab where you can give people information that's wrong and they can incorporate it into their own memories of what happened. And there's even cases where people can just construct an entire memory for things that never happened at all. And in Williams's case, it was based mostly in truth, but he got the story wrong, even though many of the elements were there. This the way you're describing this reminds me of like lossy video compression, right? Like which decreases the size of a file by basically throwing out data that's very easy to recreate. So if a section of the screen is sky and it's always sky throughout, you know, from panel to panel to panel to panel, we could throw that out for a time being, lose all that data. But then recreate it because, of course, there's sky there. That's kind of how you're describing this advantage of having our memories work in this way. That's right. And what's fascinating is that memory really allows us to work in this way and get the most useful information in the present. Because if you already walk into a kitchen, basically you know that, you know, the kitchen counter is going to have certain objects on it, right? Like you're going to expect to see a blender maybe on the kitchen counter. But if a a blender is sitting on the floor, your eyes will gravitate right to that because it doesn't fit with those expectations. And those expectations come with memory, your past experiences in there. So memory is actually serving to orient you to grab information about what's new. And then that information that's unique to this particular event now comes back and 
allows you to go, yeah, I remember when I was back in Matthew's kitchen and for some reason he kept his blender on the floor. What's up with that? You know? <laughs> but what you're saying here is that we're filling in the blanks with things that make sense. And uh, there's a Vietnam veteran I know uh, who's reflected on this as it's, it's the difference between literal truth and creating meaningful truth. And I think this really reflects something that you've written about, this idea that whenever we take out a memory, we're using it to help construct meaning. I can give you some really good examples of both ways of thinking about it. So uh, if you actually like look at some people, there's some people who are so-called memory savants, um, where they have kind of a way of remembering extraordinary details about certain kinds of weird aspects of their life. I was watching a video of one person, and she was talking about how when her father died, and she was remembering the day afterwards, and she's like, well, we were at a restaurant, and, and her story was something to the effect of, my uncle ordered fish, and I had a sandwich, and you know, we passed around like some butter back and forth. And on the one hand, it was extraordinarily detailed. But on the other hand, there wasn't much meaning in that story because this was a family gathering after her father had died. And there's not a single mention of that most meaningful part of the memory, right? But the point remained that she really had this photographic memory to some extent. She had the, the memory for a lot of these details, but there was just no meaning imbued at all. Now, on the flip side, there's a lot of research to show that if people have meaning that they can put into an experience, they remember much more of what really happened than if they don't. So having this kind of knowledge and meaning that we put into events both allows us to reconstruct more, but it also has the cost of misremembering some things or making inferences and assumptions about what happened. And then complicating that further is that meaning doesn't just get constructed in our own minds. There's a lot of social strengthening and social distortion, as you've written, that happens. The people around us can impact our memories a lot. Yes, because analyses show that over 70% of our conversational time is spent sharing memories with other people. You could argue that maybe that's even one of the most important reasons for the evolution of language is to share knowledge, share memories. And so when we share a memory, we actually tune that message up and reconstruct it in a way that's going to be maximally important for the goal of communication, right? So if I'm telling you a story from my life, it's going to be oriented with the goal of teaching people about something about memory. Once we start to share those memories back and forth, those memories are no longer mine because this person's reflecting back on me, their interpretation. And now it's not just me re rewriting the memory, but other people also playing a part in rewriting my memory. Oh, I like that. I like, like, I like the fact that like in this conversation just now over the last 20 or so minutes, like you've given me some memories that now don't just belong to you. They belong to me too. That's kind of a sweet act if you think of it that way. That's right. And that's the whole field of collective memory is about that very process of how do we construct these memories that transcend you or I and have this bigger property. One of the things that I'm trying to do is actually, I guess it's like the three things I'm trying to do are focus my environment in a way that's conducive to better day-to-day -day memory for the things that I'm trying that matter to me. 
And then number two, structuring events in my life that are meaningful to me that I can look back on a year from now. And like you said, I won't remember everything. I won't remember all the lived experiences, but I will. I want to create some memories that are things that I really want to hold on to. And so in a more meaning of life sort of way, thinking about how can I make time in my life to create the memories that I want to take with me. What is the memory? What like when you time travel, which one is the most positive memory in your life? Oh god, the most positive memory in my life. I mean, well, I'll have to say, you know, the first time I met my wife at uh, uh at it was actually a, a friend's birthday gathering at this dormitory and she let me into the door and that was like the first time we met. And again, that memory takes on meaning, not because of that moment, but how I interpreted it later. Because like, if I'd never seen her again, that would not have been, you know, one of the happiest moments. But it's a moment that I'm very grateful for. So in that sense, it was one of the happiest. So uh, again, it might not have been the experience at the time was probably not that different from other experiences. But because I met her and got to follow up with her and then we built this life together, that's obviously one of the happiest things for me. That's Jaron Ranganath. He's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of California at Davis. And he is the author of Why We Remember Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Sharon, thank you. Thank you. This was just a very fun, exciting conversation. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And from listeners like you, you can support our work at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Our producer is Reagan Edelman. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>